Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our Equine Veterinary Technical Solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community in technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888-637-4251. Hi, I'm Mike Connell, and welcome to the last episode of 2022 of the AP Practice Life podcast, as always generously sponsored by Beringer Engelheim. And so because the AAP was a bit earlier this year, as it always is when it's in San Antonio, we had some extra time. So usually we do the recap of the business news hour in January of the following year, but we have time this year. So I would like to welcome the panelists or the host of the business news hour, which was super well attended. So the three of you should be pretty proud of that. I'm going to go in, in terms of seniority on the panel. So first, and sadly for the last time, welcome back, Dr. Caitlin Daly. Caitlin, welcome back. Thank you so much for having us today. And then I'm going to jump right across the continent and over to San Francisco area and uh, welcome Dr. Kelly Zaytunian. Hey, how are you? Nice to be here. And the newbie on the panel, first of three years, is Dr. Jean Yin Tan from Calgary. Yay, Canada. Yes, Canada. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, we'll just start with you, Jean Yin, and then we'll go reverse order. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your focus of practice. Sure. So I'm an equine internal medicine specialist. I actually am originally from Alberta, and I've returned here to Calgary about seven years ago, where I'm an associate professor. And my interests are in business and internal medicine. So I have my MBA, owned my own practice, and also have my large animal internal medicine diplomat status. Excellent. And Kelly, tell us about yourself. I am, uh, first and foremost, a new mom. So that's kind of my exciting change for the year and from last year's podcast, but own a seven doctor, two location practice here in the Bay Area. And just like Jin Yan, have my MBA and have interest in business management, do some consulting through my consulting business. And my other kind of baby is technician utilization and supporting our technicians. And I do that through uh, teaching at the veterinary um, technology program here in town. Excellent. And Caitlin, rugged coast of Maine. Yeah, so I am a solo practitioner uh, working by myself, pretty much a general practice, but interest in dentistry and lameness. And then outside of regular practice life, I'm pretty passionate about speaking about work-life boundaries and sort of how to have a better, healthier relationship with our profession, in addition to helping to facilitate some of the new decade one groups that are coming out. Excellent. As we're sort of saying goodbye to 2022, it was a heck of a year. And so I don't think any of you had any shortage of interesting material 
for this year's uh, business news hour. So let's start just in the general, just veterinary business performance in general. And we can talk about how the sector in general is doing, and we can sort of get into the equine part. And I think, uh, Jean Yen, this is something that you tackled. Yeah, exactly. So at Business News Hour, we talked a little bit about macroeconomics. So we talked about the U.S. economy and how it affects us as equine practitioners, how all of us, probably the first word that comes to mind when we talk about the economy these days is inflation. It's first and foremost. I know in my mind, whenever I travel anywhere and I have to gas up my truck or when I go to the grocery store and I look at how astronomical the prices are. So that's definitely affecting us. It's also affecting our clients. So I think that's probably the biggest deal right now for a lot of us. Luckily, as equine practitioners, it's not been too bad on the supply side. So veterinary pharmaceuticals have only had about a 1.3% increase. So thankfully, that has been okay so far while biologicals have increased quite a bit more at about 5.5%. So we did cover that at Business News Hour. And then we started to talk about how we've had a really good year in veterinary medicine. We have seen increases in salary. We've seen improved debt-to-income ratio, thankfully. We're finally similar to what we were before the recession of 2008. So things looked pretty good this year as far as high demand, high disposable income. And so just to clarify, you're talking debt to income for a veterinarian or? For veterinarians, yes. So debt in terms of what the average veterinary student graduates with in the U.S. I know it's different here in Canada. And then comparing that to their average income. So I think from the slide you had there, in the general veterinary industry, it's 1.7 is the ratio. And we'll get into later on with student debt, and it's a little different with the equine story. Correct. So to give you an idea, it was at 2.09 to 1 last year. So it's improved quite a bit to 1.67, as you mentioned, for the overall veterinarian, not just equine. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And so overall, it looks like, yeah, it has been a good year. It's been a challenging year. I mean, income-wise, for sure, most people are up. You know, there's been a lot of challenges with retaining staff and veterinarians for sure. I think that's a universal, no matter what country you're talking to somebody. I talk to a lot of Europeans, same problem everywhere. So we are not an isolated island in North America, folks, that's for sure. Exactly. So definitely a good year, challenging, as you mentioned, in terms of supplying our staff. But Things are starting to change a little bit. You know, you're probably hearing more and more in the news now the word recession. You know, now now it's going hand in hand with the word inflation. So economists are now saying there's a 70% chance that there may be a recession in the U.S. next year. I think the good news is this time it's not from a collapse in the housing market. So there's perhaps a lower risk of a major financial crisis and a deep recession. And there are being slightly optimistic that it won't have a, an awful effect on jobs like it did back in 2008. But it's definitely something for us to think about as veterinarians and start to prepare for. Mm-hmm. They often talk about vet industry being resilient to recessions. And not that I want to be a naysayer, but every single time we say it, and I'm just, do you think it's going to be different this time or will vets sort of coast through it? I really hope so. I know in the small animal world, 
their demand is quite inelastic, right? Meaning that people view small animals as part of their family kind of indefinitely. They'll do anything for them. And so it is not very income reliant in small animal. I know in equine, those of us who have been practicing long enough, remember, I know for myself, it was pretty difficult during those years of the last recession. So that's still pretty fresh in my mind. In the equine industry, you know, those of us who see primarily pleasure horses, we may be a little bit more inelastic in terms of our consumer demand. But the racing industry is particularly prone to the recession. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we've had record sales Mm -hmm. at the uh, yearling sales too. So that that bodes well, sort of a forward indicator of people thinking about the health of the industry. I definitely think so as well. I, I really think that overall we're entering things in a lot better condition than we were before. Hopefully we won't be getting whiplash back and forth. And so there are some strategies we can do to try to improve things and, and try to learn from the last time around and try to be more resilient through this potential inflation and recession. So as business owners, we can raise our fees more regularly, even if it's just by a small amount frequently. We can try to improve charge capture. We can review our charge codes. Like if we've got a lot of variety in how we charge for our services, maybe you can reduce it down to one so people have less temptation to pick that cheapest charge code to charge their client. We can try to maximize our efficiency, right? Scheduling strategically can be a great example in equine practice. If we're driving an hour radius, maybe we can cluster our scheduling so we can either give a break or we can just actively try to schedule our clients on the same day in the same geographical location. For employees, there are things that you can do as well, right? If you are being paid a salary, what was once worth, you know, $1,000 is now worth 700. And so you probably might want to switch from base salary to a pro sale type deal encouraging people to buy insurance, keeping a rainy day fund, trying to watch your expenses. And funny enough, if you have excess wealth, you don't want to keep it around. It's just cash, right? It's just decreasing before your eyes. And so if you have excess wealth, trying to buy stocks while they're low and trying to buy practices even while they're low, if that's something that you see in your future, maybe it's it's time to buy. Yeah, that's a great segue. And I know, Caitlin, you talked a lot about the other big thing going on in 2022 was practice consolidation. Yeah, so we have seen a number of big name practices sell to corporate this past year. So Steinbeck, uh, Peninsula, Animal Imaging, Pioneer and Bay Hill Equine have all sold to corporate, NVA and Advanti Equine. So we're seeing quite a bit of that. I mean, I think it's 50% of small animal revenue is coming from corporate consolidated practices. So it's a trend that we're going to continue to see in equine, hopefully not to that extent, but it is making its way into our sector. You know, some of the numbers they're paying for small animal, companion animals, not near what an equine, we're not, they're worth the multiples of, of profit or EBITDA. Any comments from any of the three of you that I've been hearing from some people that it's a bit of a bust and that the the bubble is gone in terms of the high values people or these corporate groups were paying for practices? What we have to keep in mind, you know, studies show that equine owners are picking 
their veterinary practices based on the veterinarian. Like they're more bonded to the veterinarian. We go into their homes. We have very intimate relationships with our clients versus small animal owners are picking the practices and they're bonded to the practice. Right. So if the practice sells to corporate and then the favorite veterinarians leave, then where is the value in the practice anymore? Mm -hmm. We see that a lot. But I know there was one article that you brought up, Caitlin, talking about 40% of practice owners are considering selling their practices. Yeah. So this was in Ireland. So 40% were considering selling. 60% of the respondents were citing staffing issues as a major concern. The older demographic of practice owners, 50% of them had no succession plan in place as to what they were going to do with their practice as they aged into retirement. And so sometimes the easiest plan to them just seemed to be to sell to corporate. Right. So Kelly, let's bring you into the conversation. One area that we didn't really plan for, but I think it's important, and that is what leaders should be focusing on. We're talking about recession, inflation, we're talking consolidation. The three of you had some slides on you know, what leaders should be focusing on 2022, 2023. What insights did you gain? It's just been a heck of a year. And Jeannian talked about whiplash. I think a lot of employees are feeling the whiplash, inflation, recession, regardless. I think just the busyness factor and the ever-changing environment has led a lot of people, I've experienced it in my own clinic, just kind of wondering like where their place is, what practice is going to look like tomorrow, you know, what, what's their schedule going to be like, what's life going to be like six months from now, a year from now. So one of the things that we talked about and then I brought to everyone's attention was throughout all of this change, there's things that are out of our hands and out of our control, but our ability to really communicate with our team, make sure that they feel safe and know kind of where their place is and what our vision is for continued growth or continued stability. Finding those modalities where we can really kind of keep everybody communicating is really important. So whether that's a Zoom meeting like, you know, we're doing or Slack to communicate. I talked about coffee breaks and taking people to Starbucks and having those one-on-one check-ins so that we make sure that everyone's happy and everyone has their concerns answered and addressed. And that's maybe one of the things that we're going to find with some of the corporate buyouts is that they have a bit more difficulty, in my opinion, maintaining a culture and creating a culture of practice that people really thrive on and people are looking for as they're searching for a job. So I think some of the the tools we talked about and the check-ins we discussed can really help us to maintain that practice culture we're looking for. Yeah, it really emphasizes that if you don't fill in your employees with what's going to happen, they're just going to make up their own stories and may be totally opposite of where you're going. So a little bit of foresight would be really helpful. So, but there's a lot of exciting things and usually we don't necessarily talk about medicine in the business news hour, but that's what happens when you get an internist on. And so, Jinye, you talk a little bit about the innovations and acquisitions going on medically. There are some pretty cool things that you brought up. I know. I snuck in equine infectious disease into business news hour. Look at that. Wow. <laughs> well, well played. Yeah. So as many of us know, the testing we have available to us for Lyme disease is not very sensitive. 
So we have a PCR available to us, but there's not much detectable bacterial DNA in the CSF of equine or human patients with Lyme disease. So there was a case report published by the group at Cornell on a horse who had really severe grade 4 or 5 ataxia, head tilt, eventually narcolepsy. And they retrospectively used a novel technique born out of Rutgers called the hybrid capture testing. And they used it on some saved CSF samples they had as a way to isolate DNA and enrich the genomes to improve detection of Lyme disease. So this was a novel case report and something that we're seeing potentially on the horizon here, potentially, you know, a new, more sensitive test that could be readily available and could be quite cost-effective for us. And so that's not out yet commercially, but we do have a case report on that. And we definitely reported on that at Business News Hour. Also, some other equine industry innovations, the fact that a lot of us are using the Acervo Equihaler now, and many of us feel like it's pretty wasteful when we have to throw that away after each use. And so that's made recyclable now by TerraCycle. So you can sign up online to get prepaid shipping labels. I also mentioned at Business News Hour a few different options that we're getting in terms of generics. So we're getting generic furacoxib, generic ketomid, ketoprofen. We have now detomidine hydrochloride from Bimeta. So we've got some options and potentially some options on the horizon too. So we've got some patents that are expiring soon. Exceed is expiring in 2024. Dorm gel and Ospos in 2026. So hopefully we'll have some more cost-effective options for our patients soon. I gotta say, I cried just a little bit less when I dropped a brand new bottle of generic detomidine on the ground and broke it. Oh. I guess one of the things, bringing this back to just talking about the economy in general, and we talked about the debt-to-income ratio, we talked earlier that the equine veterinarian debt-to-income ratio was a lot higher than general practice. So who wants to talk about that fun statistic? I think, Caitlin, that was you. Yeah, I tackled that in the Business News Hour. So in 2021, the average student debt for graduates was $145,000. But one thing that really frustrates me about these surveys is that they always include those that graduated with no debt. So we know that that number is likely much higher. So we said that the general population of regular veterinarians is 1.67, while equine still remains really high at 3.7. So that just makes it exceedingly difficult to buy into a practice, a mortgage, anything like that, where they're really taking in your debt to income ratio into account. It's definitely more than double what the average is across the whole specter. So that's, that's astronomical. Yeah. And they considered, I think it's 1.6 to be normal or average for a professional. So yeah, it's pretty disappointing that we're still that high in the equine sector. That begs us to talk about salaries then, because that's really a hot topic right now. With the whole, the AP focus on sustainability and compensation, there's some studies, but Let's just first talk about resident and intern salaries. Who would like to talk about that? Because there was some interesting data on that. Well, that was me as well. What we found or what they found during the 2020 to 2021 academic year, that the average salary for interns was 28000 And for residents, it was 35000 
And to sort of put it into perspective, my salary as an intern in 2011 was $24,000. So it had it very much. What's really upsetting, though, is when they calculated the regional living wage, there was 17% of residents and 32% of interns that were actually getting paid below the average living wage for their area. So meaning that they are working their fannies off and cannot afford where they are living. Crazy. I think the only good news about that is I, for one, as an intern or resident, I had zero life outside of internship or residency. So I had nothing that I needed to pay for. So that's the only reason I think people have been able to survive is this sad, sad acknowledgement that you have no life, therefore you have no expenses. And I don't know if anybody else picked up on it, but when Caitlin was describing earlier, she said regular veterinarians and equine veterinarians. And she's maybe not wrong. What is wrong with this picture when we are working for so little salaries? Something's got to change. And I know that we we talked about that quite a bit. Yeah, I did pick up on that as well. And I think I was talking to a small animal veterinarian on another podcast earlier this year. And I mentioned working 80 to 90 hours per week as a clinical trainee. And she was completely blown away by that. Those are staggering hours. Part of the salary is interesting. And I was really glad that you included that this year because this was an interesting insight where some of the benefits that are being offered for jobs now. I've always got to look at this from the Canadian mindset because there's things like maternity leave and all that that we just take for granted up here. But interesting, like relocation bonus, sign-on bonuses, student loans, part-times, like it's it's incredible how creative practice owners are having to be now because it's, you know, the dollar value is one thing, but it's all this other stuff that's important as well. Well, and it's awesome because some of these, you know, search keywords, the amount of practices offering relocation bonuses has doubled in the last year. So these were fairly new concepts, I think, in 2021. And in 2022, they are becoming more commonplace. They're giving these practices the edge, a competitive edge, when it's really so hard to find associates now. And what was even better, there were 152 listings, 60 of them that were equine specific that were offering part-time positions in the veterinary sector. So that's amazing as well, because maybe we can start getting the people that left equine for various reasons to start coming back. People were not able to meet the needs of their family and the job at the same time. Maybe they can enter back into the equine sector if we're offering part-time positions. Yeah, for sure. I think that signing bonus and moving allowance, that really comes into play too when you're earning so little, especially as an intern or resident. I know for myself, when I was moving, I didn't have any money. I I couldn't even pay for the moving truck or for that first month's rent that you need. Having a moving allowance really helped with that. So thankfully, across the industry, we've got a mean signing bonus now of about $6,500 to about $11,500, which is fairly significant, although it is subject to taxes. And then we have mean moving allowances now about $3,000 to almost $5,000. So hopefully that will definitely help some people out. We've hired a few people this past year and having a moving allowance was so attractive to them, really attractive. I was in a similar situation as Genian where I couldn't afford uh, to move either. And I did not have a moving allowance. I had to borrow money from my parents. 
And so basically my first paycheck as a full-fledged equine veterinarian went to my parents to pay them back. <laughs> so Kelly, you uh, discussed the starting salaries and this whole section on salaries. And this was, this was fascinating. And I know there was a lot of mumbling and murmuring in the room over this next section. So why don't you introduce us to the whole salary section of the Business News Hour? Sure. So I was able to present 2020 numbers um, that AVMA reported on salaries. And we had a look at the comparison of Caitlin's quote unquote regular veterinarians, food animal, uh, companion animal, mixed animal, and compare that to equine practice. And the difference in starting salaries, you know, as we've said, is just abysmal, anywhere from 10 to 20,000 more. Uh, And then even more discouraging, disappointing, infuriating is the breakdown of male to female respondents. And in equine practice, we saw um, an average starting salary for um, the male respondents of 75,000 versus the female respondents of 56,000. So we already have this income disparity between equine practice and the equine track versus large animal, food animal, uh, and companion track. And then on top of it, we add insult to injury by even uh, lower amounts for the female respondent. That's a discouraging number and um, something that we had talked about at one of the, the meetings for the new AAEP charter on how we can attract new members to the equine side of things. One of the things that came out of it was an informal but anonymous study that Dr. Amy Grice composed over Facebook and SurveyMonkey. The promising thing about her numbers, and these are more recent, these were done in, let's see, they asked numbers from graduates of 2017 to 2021. So a little bit more recent than the 2020 AVMA study. And equine associates average salary was 88,000. So better than that 75,000 or 56,000 reported by AVMA in 2020. And I think her respondents much higher numbers. We had 388 associates respond in that study compared to the AVMA study that only had uh, a handful, I think 29 or so. It's better. Uh, I think we still need to dig into it more and those salaries do need to come up for us to continue attracting people as Caitlin mentioned, but uh, it's, it's at least makes me feel a little bit better than looking at the AVMA numbers. And I could tell you just, you know, it'll come out later in 2023, just but I'm fortunate to be on the compensation subcommittee of this sustainability and practice. And there's a lot of research that we're just slicing and dicing right now that's much more encouraging than what we historically know. We're getting there slowly. Well, maybe we'll be like regular vets one day. <laughs> Interesting, though, one of the things that the pie chart that you had up, Kelly, just about Day seeing routine work in busy season from like seven days a week at 13% all the way down to four days a week. Uh, what a range. I was really happy to see that four days a week uh, and 25% at that. That to me is promising. And 
I wondered about the question of define busy season. Uh, I know that some areas of the country uh, are certainly more seasonal in nature. I feel like we don't have a season here in California, and I am thankful for that. That's nice to see. But on the other side of that, 13% of the respondents are working seven days a week. Where does that leave any room for anything else? I don't know. That's not for me. That's not how I want to practice. Some people enjoy that, but I at least am happy to see that there is some variability, which maybe means that uh, we're opening our eyes to alternative work schedules for ourselves and our associates a bit more openly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to get into the one thing, the salary sort of segues into the discussion on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I want to spend some time on it because it does come to salary. I will say as a preface that when I saw that slide that we'll get into, I was sitting in the audience and I was like, I actually got angry. You know, when you see injustices happening in the world, you get angry. This was one of them. And I'm not sure which one of the three of you really led off the discussion on DEI. Please share with us. It was a fascinating segment. Sure. Um, so I started off by pointing out what the statistics are in terms of white versus Hispanic and non-white proportions in terms of U.S. veterinarians. So in general, across AVMA, it's 90% white, 10% Hispanic or non-white. When it comes to equine veterinarians, we're at 95% white. So we increase when it becomes equine veterinarians. And when you compare that to the general U.S. population, it's quite a staggering difference. So the general U.S. population is 59% white and 41% Hispanic or non-white. And so you may say, okay, well, that doesn't translate very well to the equine-owning demographic. I was unable to find any statistics on actual equine owners, but I did find some statistics on horse trainers. And there I found it was 84% white and 16% non-white. And so there's a disparity either way you slice it between equine veterinarians and horse trainers, regular veterinarians, or really any of the rest of the U.S. population. And and talking about Equity and inclusion was the the next slide where we talked about the disparity in what female veterinarians are paid versus male veterinarians. And as I said, I could not think about that. Yeah, this was a hot topic at Business News Hour was a slide that I made on equity. So it was a study from Neil et al. from Cornell. And I promise I am not pointing out Cornell studies just because I'm a Cornell grad. It just so happens that they're the ones who produced the study. It was published in 2022, but it used AVMA and AAP veterinary census data from 2016 and 2017. So there were almost 3,000 responses. So that's a 17% response rate, representing about 7% of vets. And you may think that's, that's very low, but it's actually fairly high when it comes to survey data. And what they found is that almost every level of experience, from the very lowest level of experience to the high levels of experience, female veterinarians had lower mean and median incomes. Now, the part that shows the greatest disparity that I think Mike made your jaw drop when I showed that slide is the income category where you earn greater than $120,000. 
So when you look at that demographic, there is a mean income difference of $100,000 with men earning on average $100,000 more than women. I do want to point out when you look at the statistics a little bit further, because people you know, are quick to scrutinize that, approximately half of that income category are practice owners, and approximately half of that income category are men. We don't really know exactly what's causing it, but they did point out that partnerships were more beneficial to women's income than if they were the sole owner. Whereas for men, it didn't matter if they were a sole proprietor or a partnership or a corporation, they earned more regardless. The authors did delve into this a little bit deeper. So they looked into past literature and they did show that clients have gender biases that can affect income potential. So that may be a factor here. There may also be another factor, which is that female business owners tend to have smaller practices and they tend to get less external financing. But in the end, what it comes down to is that women didn't necessarily benefit from owning a practice when the alternative for increasing your income is to specialize or simply to work more hours to increase your income. They didn't necessarily seem to benefit the way men did. And of course, there's limitations to the study, you know, like relatively, even though I say that's a fairly high survey response rate, it's still a small number in comparison. And we need to have more in-depth analysis. I think now that we know this, we need to dive into it a little bit deeper, specifically what kind of practice are these people in? How many technicians do they have per veterinarian? You know, all these factors that increase efficiency. But in the end, I think it's pretty staggering. No matter how, how you look at it, the statistics aren't lying. There's a mean income difference of 100,000 between men and women at the highest income category. That's staggering. And it just begs more research on the real reasons on it. But one last area I want to touch upon in DEI, just because I know this has been, again, another area of concern, almost a fevered pitch in some of the AP discussion groups of what value is there in promoting DEI. And I know you had a great slide talking about other industries, other professions of what does it mean when a young person can see a person of color or a female or whatever in the profession. Let's chat about that a little bit, please. What people don't necessarily realize is that even if you don't perceive there being a barrier in the industry, the numbers aren't lying. You know, the fact that you have so many more people in university who are people of color compared to those that are admitted to vet school, and then it gradually shrinks as it gets down to equine practice indicates that there are barriers, right? And so people say, oh, anyone can freely practice veterinary medicine, but perhaps it's not as simple as it seems that anyone can practice veterinary medicine. And so we see that in terms of admission statistics, we see it kind of across the board at multiple different levels. And I think that part of our responsibility as part of the equine profession can be to look at how we can reduce barriers and make everyone feel welcome in this profession. I have a very sick joke when uh, young people ask me, how did our business get so successful out of the gate? And I said, it was easy. I graduated and started practice when I was 40. And so being a white guy with gray hair, instant authority, people would come up to me like I had all the experience in the world and I've been out of school for two months. But literally having gray hair, you're a smart person in the eyes of many people. And it's 
And I'd be there with my wife who graduated a year ahead and was way smarter than I am. And they'd be, we'd be at the AAP of the convention like, oh, is this your tech? You know, it was just like, I remember you. <laughs> so it's been going on for a while and hopefully it's getting better. That's a great example. Thanks for sharing, Mike. And that's unfortunately is all too often what you hear out in practice. You know, you'll hear about male veterinary students who are looked at by the client as the doctor when you have the 20 years senior female veterinarian in the room with them. Absolutely. Yeah. When we did the business news hour, I learned a lot about diversity from Genian as we were preparing. And after we got home from AAP, I was at a farm that was having like a kid's camp. And there was a young boy and then a little girl of color. And I thought that, that was amazing that we're seeing diversity of kids going to these horse camps. And when talking to the farm manager later, she told me that those two children had been sponsored by a coworker that her parents couldn't afford, their parents couldn't afford to send them to horse camp because we all know that being involved in the equine profession is expensive. And so she sponsored them to have this opportunity. And I thought, that's amazing. I would love to sponsor a student. Maybe one thing that we could do as business owners to get children of economic disadvantage or children of color to be introduced into horses that maybe a few of them may end up being in the veterinary profession one day. Great point. Great point. Let's talk about technicians. And I know, Caitlin, you spoke about it, but I know this is really is something that Kelly is so passionate about. So let's talk about who wants to handle technician use. I'm going to pass the baton to Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like my soapbox is just, I'm shouting from the rooftops. It just makes sense. If we can't get behind it from a safety perspective, from a culture perspective, from an efficiency perspective, just look at the numbers. We know from the AVMA AAP economic report that individuals who hire and have additional support behind them, they produce more and in turn have higher salaries. I mean, the, the numbers speak for themselves from that perspective. You know, now of any time in economics and the history of equine medicine, we are in a position to really utilize our technicians and have them working to the top of their skill set. Uh, I like the mantra, only do what only you can do. There are so many things that we as equine veterinarians do on a daily basis that there are well-qualified individuals that can come and assist us and get them done and leave us time to do the work and the billable hours that only we are capable of doing. So as an example, I shared, I've been on maternity leave the last three months, which has been amazing. And that's a choice and not everybody chooses to stay out that long, but I was able to make that choice based on what I personally want to do for myself and my family, not on what the business or I can financially afford. The technicians drive in my car and and actually, I don't say my car because you remember in 2021, we all share cars, but she's driving Claudia because they all have names and she's seeing appointments two or three times a week on her own and is really enjoying it and is going to keep doing that when I go back in January. So I'm going to work a day less so she can go out and keep doing those things. Clients are 
completely accepting of it. And anybody who's listening to this and thinking, there's no way my clients are going to let somebody other than doctor show up. It just takes a little bit of education. And sometimes it just takes saying, I can get registered veterinary technicians sue out here this week, or I can get Dr. Smith out there in two weeks time. People get it. You know, we see nurse practitioners when we show up for our own visits at the the hospital and sometimes never talk to a doctor or follow up with the doctor via uh, telehealth types of options. So technician utilization and then the technology utilization, obviously goes right in hand with that. Everybody can make their lives so much better and more profitable at the same time. You're here. Something else to consider too is not just if you don't have a certified technician, you have an assistant, making sure that we utilize those to the best of our ability. You know, we're so used to like, they drive us around and that's what they do. And then they hold the horse, but they can be writing your medical notes as you dictate to them, doing your billing, doing so much so that the amount of time you end up working during the day is decreased. So you're actually decreasing your non-billable hours and either ending your workday earlier or seeing more horses in one day, increasing the amount of revenue you can produce. I do want to give a quick shout out to AAEVT. Um, I sat in on some of their talks during the conference and one of the comments that they made and sort of a motto or slogan that they shared was that they're not just a hitching post. And I think that that is something that we need to remember. You've got really smart, able-bodied individuals working with you, put them to use, find out what they're passionate about, get them actively involved. It makes a better culture. It definitely helps with retaining those employees. And, and again, keeps you safe, keeps you finishing your day closer to that five o'clock hour instead of writing medical records and billing and everything else into the midnight hours. And this is the perfect segue to our last subject. And I just uh, spent some time here because this is such an important element in our profession, whether you're a regular vet or an equine vet, and that is burnout in the profession. And I know you shared some great resources and uh, who would like to uh, lead us out talking about that? Because I think this is always, always relevant. Caitlin did a really great job of this in 2021 and and really focusing on it. I think that was kind of the overarching theme then. And since then, and in 2022, we've, like you said, had some really nice resources that have come out. We highlighted some of um, those that are sort of from a national level. They've actually been produced from the U.S. Surgeon General's office. And there's some really fantastic quizzes and resources if you are concerned about somebody within your practice experiencing burnout or kind of being on that trajectory. And then even closer to home and something that's just recently been rolled out as of, I believe, September of 2022 is uh, this AAP Healthy Practice Member Assistance Program. And the Member Assistance Program, if you have not had an opportunity to get onto the AAP website and dig into it. It's pretty fantastic. And you can really find a lot of resources and get lost in all of the different avenues of assistance. Some of it is more personal related. Other aspects of it are sort of legal or financial advice. But what's really nice about it is you do have access to confidential one-on-one support for mental health concerns and any other concerns for yourself, but also for household family members. So 
take some time to look at it. There's really a whole lot available on that website. Caitlin, can you tell us about 988? I did not know about this being in Canada, but this was fascinating. Yeah, so 988 is the new mental health hotline, suicide prevention and crisis lifeline, because so many people, when there's a crisis, they think to call 911, which is an appropriate response. However, the police aren't necessarily trained, understandably, uh, to deal with mental health crisis. So a lot of times these cases end up with more arrests. Uh, One fourth of fatal shootings have been involved uh, with somebody suffering with mental illness. So that's why 988 is now available. Somebody can call, they can text, it's available 24-7. So far, 90% of the callers get what they need over the phone. And if they aren't, then the remaining 10% are connected to additional support or in-person care. So this really helps take a lot of the burden off of the police and to also get the callers to the information and the people they need sooner. Interesting, Mike, what you mentioned about Canada, because I heard a radio ad in the last week that said 988 was now the suicide prevention line here in Alberta as well. So I think it's something on the horizon that's coming 2023 to Canada. Excellent. It's a sad subject, but it's a positive note that there's resources and help out there. So I'd like to thank uh, three of you for taking the extra time, especially just before the holiday season. And But for those at the AAP that were not able to see, must see the Business News Hour, uh, thanks for sharing your uh, your stories. And thank you again to uh, Beringer Engelheim for sponsoring this. Uh, really do need those sponsors to help us uh, get the good word out. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. Beringer Engelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our equine veterinary technical solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community in technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888-637-4251.